Welcome back to the Red Dice Diaries, and in this joint podcast review, I'm happy to be joined by my fellow Purple Worm co-host, Pete Jones, from the excellent Dragons Are Real podcast, and we're going to be reviewing The Islands of Purple Haunted Putrescence by Venger Satanis, a gonzo science fantasy supplement for the OSR. Okay, so we start off with the overview. This supplement bills itself as an old-school weird fantasy campaign setting and wilderness hex crawl. It's written by Venger Satanis, and sometimes controversial figure in the OSR community. Venger was kind enough to send us a review copy. It's full colour and is approximately 110 pages long. The book has a warning on the cover about mature content, and the cover picture is pretty much a view of a woman's arse as seen from behind. Now, I can't say that this bothered me particularly, but I can see it putting some people off the book. Although I suppose if you persevere and don't like what you find in the book, at least you can't say you weren't warned. We move on to the foreword, and it's a brief but slightly rambling, prosaic tour through the author's view on OSR gaming, his place in the community, and even squeezes in a bit of musing on the nature of thoughts and memories, and the differences between things that we recall that factually happened, and things that we recall that we invented for games like RPGs. And I thought this was quite an interesting little aside. So let's see what Pete thought about it. So, as John said, the front cover of this book is a large arse. Pretty concise, a woman's arse. Now, personally, I don't find it offensive. Frankly, I've got 1970s rock album covers with worst art on it, or more bearing art on it. So, personally, I don't find it offensive. I showed it to my wife to see what her thoughts were, and she said, to be honest... You see more these days on reality TV shows with women in skimpy costumes trying to get dates off young men. So I think it may have been designed to catch the eye and maybe it is a controversial cover, but doesn't mean that everybody will find it offensive. Would I like it on my computer screen if I was working in an office full of people? No, I wouldn't. I think Pete makes a very good point here, and likewise I've shown this cover to my own wife and a few female friends of mine, and to be honest most of them said pretty much the same thing, that they've been out in far skimpier outfits than are shown on the cover of the book. And to be honest the art is quite cartoony in style, and it's obviously not really representative of an actual person that's just my point of view obviously but it's far from the most offensive thing i've seen and pretty much most of the people i've shown it to don't seem to be concerned by it as for the forward as john says it's an interesting read um vengus says that he's a bit of a loner he felt different because uh, he was an outsider and i think many people who play rpgs maybe identify with what Vengus is saying in the forward. 
The next section is titled Voyage to the Purple Islands. Now, I've made no secret of the fact that I'm not a massive fan of game fiction or fluff. I generally prefer it to be subtly threaded through a game supplement. So an entire double column page of game fiction is probably one of my worst nightmares. I'm not a big fan of the writing here. It's not terrible, it's just not really my thing, and it's quite heavy on exposition, but it's easy to skim through, so this isn't really a major thing. I have to agree with John here again. Um, I'm not a big fan of fiction in RPGs. The first time I opened this PDF, I completely skimmed this section, and it's not something I would normally read. But I'm sure if you like that sort of thing, then go ahead, fill your boots. We then move on to the introduction. And although I'm not keen on the fiction that precedes it, the next page I find extremely interesting as it presents a number of different ways that the Purple Islands can be portrayed and used in your game. Discussing briefly how the perceived environment the game takes place in can be shaped by the GM's description from mundane description to the extremely gonzo and a sort of middle ground where the majority of the setting is what you would expect from your typical fantasy game but some elements contrast with that to really emphasize their strangeness this was cool to see personally i'm a fan of having a fairly standard fantasy setting then having a few bizarre elements since i've always thought that if everything's bizarre nothing is Venger also offers his own cut-down rules for playing through the scenario, christened VSD6 in the text. I've not tested this out sufficiently to comment on it in great detail, but in essence, it's a D6 dice pool system with some little tweaks and extras. Now, I thought this book was going to be a book you could use with any generic OSR-type game. And, of course, you can. So, I really can't see why... Vengus has put his own system in here, what he calls VSD6. Maybe his intention at the beginning was to use that for the system uh, through the whole book, but obviously being his own system, it wouldn't have sold the book. So he had to go for a generic feel. Now I'm just going to cut in a little bit here. If I remember correctly, the original reason why Venger came up with this VSD6 system was that he wanted to be able to very quickly run through and play test modules as sort of one shots and limited edition runs without all the character genning and stuff that comes as standards with a campaign and he just wanted to be able to get into that and quickly run stuff with a playtest group. So invented this simple system to be able to just quickly play through modules. Obviously, feel free to call in and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's the reasoning behind it. So what is this VSDX system? Well, if you've played Cthulhu Dark, the old sorcerer by Ron Edwards, then that is a system. It's a D6 pool system. And you count the highest dice. And if you roll, if your highest dice is a six, that whatever you were attempting is mostly a complete success. However, if you, the highest dice you rolled was a one, it means that your attempt was a disaster. Not only does the attempt fail, but something additionally, unexpectedly bad occurs. So though I can see using this as a house rule for his games, I can't really see the point of putting it in this book unless he's just trying to publicise a system he uses. I can't really see many people using it, but it's there if you want it. 
The author also outlines a sample structure that he follows when creating an adventure. I can see it working well for a one-shot game. There are also some cool random tables, allowing the PCs to come up with dark secrets and random background flashbacks. Unsurprisingly, these lean slightly more towards the gonzo, high fantasy end of the spectrum, but that's hardly something that can be criticised given the nature of the supplement. Essentially, the random tables are the author's attempt to encourage the players to think of a unique selling point for their characters beyond the raw numbers and probabilities of the system. This is a cool idea and one that's been expressed in a number of different games. It's definitely a welcome addition here. There are also some more random tables for spell miscasting and the like. These are really cool and add an extra level of character to the campaign. My only little niggle in this section is the table of random dimensions. Whilst the idea of random dimensions and doorways opening to strange places is pretty compelling, I think too many wacky dimensions could dilute the core of the campaign. As for the notes about how to create uh, an adventure, again, my initial notes before I heard what John said was, yeah, it'd be great for one-shots. Another comments I liked here is uniqueness counts. So what he's saying is before the first session, each player should tell the GM something about the character which isn't recorded on their character sheet. One thing that defines them as a, as a character. And the idea is that it gives the sort of some kind of bonus that should be conferred on the character, but also it gives some hook for the GM to latch onto. I quite like the tables that uh, have been added the random tables always handy i mean i may not use them but certainly uh, casting your eye over them it gives you some ideas that uh, you can include in your game or that you can include in any other game and the one that caught my eye was from the uh, magic use table a purple worm erupts from the ground swallowing a random humanoid within 30 foot of the mage, whole before descending back into the nether realms. And obviously, being involved with the Purple Worm podcast, that one caught my eye. So all in all, some nice ideas in here. Maybe you could cull them for your other games. The next section of the book has a strange variant monk class in it. It's pretty much what you'd expect in terms of unarmed attacks and the like, but there are also abilities allowing you to captivate people's attention and assess an enemy's weakness. Whilst I'm not sure how keen I am on the class personally, Head Exploding Monks certainly fits in with the gonzo flavour that the author seems to be going for. Now, I'm not a big fan of the monk character class, and if I was going to have monks in my game, I would probably use the monk from the corals I was using. But if you want an alternative, then Venga supplies you with an alternative. It's not something I would use. There's a, a section on magical weapons in the Purple Lands. There's some rules here that make magical weapons um, more useful or different. Whenever using a magical sword, you get a crit on a natural of a 19 or 20. And then you have a crit hits table and you either use a D12 or D8, depending on whether you rolled a 19 or 20. He also introduces exploding dice it adds an extra layer of crunch onto what you're already using. He also gives egos to all their swords, all magic swords are intelligent in this world. And there's a D100 table to work out what the ego or the trait of your sword is. 
There's also extra crunch for the origins of a sword. And he also includes a permanent injury table, which that might be a bit more useful. Um, if a character is reduced to zero hit points, then you roll a d20 on the permanent injury table. And it might be a, something as simple as a cauliflower ear or a facial scar. So that one could be quite useful and you could use it in other games. We then move on to a section about running the campaign, and it begins with a smattering of game fiction, then moves on to give us a bullet point history of the Purple Lands. I'm hoping this might give me some more insight onto how to actually run a campaign beyond throw all the weirdness you can handle at the players, since at this point I was a bit of a loss as to how I'd actually start such a campaign. Essentially, the history of the Purple Islands is a familiar mix of great Old One-esque races, followed by the rise of the Snake Man Empire and the eventual coming of the more common fantasy races. In the midst of a revolution, the common races overthrowing their serpentine masters, a huge meteor strikes the planet, killing hundreds, bringing plague and a growth of strange crystals. Since then, using the crystals as an energy source, the various races have transformed their land into a strange melange of the monstrous occult and the alien super science. Until the meteor strike, the background is familiar swords and sorcery territory, with the meteor serving as the blender slash justification to mash a load of extra weirdness into the setting. There are more random tables allowing you to determine links to the islands, random events, encounters, etc. There are mentions of the Dreamlands and the Mego, which, along with some of the excellent black and white artwork, firmly nudges the Purple Islands towards Mythos territory, albeit in a more brazen and outright fashion than more traditional Mythos tales. It's a lot of information here. Uh, personally, I would have liked bullet points, but I, I'm not big into the history of a setting. I just want a few bullet points so I know where to go. There's some scenario seeds which you can roll on, but to be honest, there's not that many. There's nine of them, or if you roll a ten, then you combine two of them. Maybe there should be a few more of those. A personal connection to the island, yep, that could be useful. A rumor table, a more per you know, there's some a few tables here that you can roll on if you like your random tables. We then move on to a section titled Black Pylons and Crystals. Each of the islands has a black pylon on it, strange monoliths that can be programmed like dimensional computers, using crystals to open portals, create magical effects, and other such things. I've always been a fan of the lack of boundaries between what we've come to know as science fiction and fantasy, certainly early D&D and some of the later clones had far less clearly defined divides between the two genres. Expedition to the Barrier Peaks is the oft-quoted and most obvious example of this from the early days of D&D, and this section was very interesting. We then move on to talking about factions and groups in the game. The hex crawl nature of the book really starts to become apparent in this section, as a number of the major groups occupying the islands are sketched out. However, 
In addition to certain details being provided, there are also random tables to help determine various minor aspects and relationships between this shifting tapestry of organizations. Now, I really like this since it means that the Purple Islands one person runs will not be the same as the next person's, even though there will be similarities. And I think this gives the campaign a lot of potential replay value. And plus, there's a big group of snake men in there. And if there's one thing you should know about me, I bloody love the idea of snake men. I'm a fan of the, the Conan stories and pretty much any sort of swords and sorcery genre that has snake men in it is all good as far as I'm concerned. The black pounds and crystals, they are unique to the setting and I feel that it gives it a good sort of feel to the setting. It's different. It's not something that I've seen in other settings. So it sets it up nicely. You've got your different types of crystals and what the crystals use. And I think there's some really good ideas in there. I'm not going to give too much away, but um, needless to say, that gives the setting a unique feeling. Going on to the major factions, there's a good array of factions here that are involved on the islands. Plenty to get your teeth into. There's some random tables here which you can use to see um, how the factions interact with each other. So I think there's some great ideas in there. It also means that you can add some randomness to your setting. And no two settings will be the same. So some great ideas in there for new GMs to uh, roll on there. And maybe just give you some inspiration as to which way you'd like to go with these purple lands. There's a good wandering monster table which you can use for your hex crawls across the islands and there's some different types of creatures there, not your standard orcs and goblins, you've got your snake men, ape men, hunter killer robots, so a nice mix of difference that you can give to your players and of course your players aren't going to know the stats of these because I know a lot of my players, they've memorised a lot of the regular creatures but here you've got things that are a bit different that they ain't going to know what they're up to and what their stats are. Okay, so that's it for the first part of this review. We hope you've enjoyed it. And if you'd like to see the second part and what our conclusions are about the Islands of Purple Haunted Putrescence, head on over to Pete's podcast, Dragons Are Real. And I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes and you can find the second part and our conclusions there so until i see you next time from both myself and pete take care on whatever games you're playing have fun we'll see you soon uh...